Hi, everybody. This is Chris popping in quick off the top here to let you know that we have an incredible summer replay episode for you today. A conversation that I had with Oliver Berkman, the best-selling author of the brilliant book, 4,000 Weeks, which is linked in the show notes. Uh, Arden and I will be back next time to chat about stimulation fasting. We have uh, a good episode that we're planning for the hopper for that one, but we wanted to get this episode in your feed because of how helpful we think it might be for you. So hope you enjoy the conversation and a little bit of our old theme song too, which is kind of a blast from the past. It was fun uh, putting together the edits for this one. And we will see you next episode. Hey there again. It's Chris here. Hope you're having a wonderful week. Today, we have a special treat on the podcast. We have Oliver Berkman. I'm not sure if you've seen Oliver's new book, 4,000 Weeks. It is an incredible, riveting read on what makes life worth living. Uh, the book, the full title, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, is available wherever books are sold. It's a New York Times bestseller. It is one of the best-reviewed productivity books in years as well. His other books are The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, and Help, How to Become Slightly Happier and Get a Bit More Done. Great books. He wrote a long-running column for The Guardian called This Column Will Change Your Life and has a devoted following for his writing on productivity, mortality, and the power of of limits. In this conversation, we chat about his book, 4,000 Weeks, about the future-chasing mindset, about the idea of finitude, about time hoarding, something that I personally am guilty on, which we chat about in the podcast itself, as well as impatience and where it all comes from and the, the beautiful canvas that we have to paint all of our actions upon, which are these four thousand weeks. This is one of my favorite conversations that I've had on the podcast. Oliver is just a smart, uh, passionate, insightful fella, and it's an honor to welcome him to the podcast. Oliver Berkman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. And congratulations on the incredible book. I've already heaped some uh, praise on you and and this piece of work before our recording, but it truly is uh, a must read on time management. And I, I hope listeners, anybody listening to this right now, takes that to heart. Uh, pick up the book Four Thousand Weeks. It is uh, it's well worth your time, your attention, your energy. Um, I, I do want to begin our chat by talking about an idea that's central in the book, which is that of finitude. Uh, and I especially love what you talk about with regard to embracing the limits that we have. Uh, in the book, you write, quote, We've been granted the mental capacities to make almost infinitely ambitious plans, yet practically no time at all to put them into practice. And later on, you write, quote, it's only by embracing our finitude that we can step into a truly authentic relationship with life. And I feel after reading this book, this is an ideal place to start. What is finitude and uh, what is it that makes it worth thinking about? I've been kind of amused uh, in some of the responses to the book to realize that this this word is a bit less current 
and well known than than uh, I thought. And uh, I, I had to pull I, up one of those, you know, how to pronounce where where they, uh, you know, those YouTube videos that yeah. are like twenty seconds long. Yeah. Is it finitude or finitude? I think yeah. it's finitude. Certainly finitude. throughout the audiobook, I say finitude. So I really hope that that's, uh, that that's what hope it is. Hope you got it right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I've even been credited with inventing it by a few people, but that is definitively oh false. God, no, wow. that is not true. I did not invent it. I, I think that um, what I'm talking about here is, first of all, the fact of our limited time, the fact that our time is limited. Uh, the title of the book refers to the sort of average amount of time a human being in the West gets, but yeah. the really important point here is not exactly how much one gets, but the fact that one gets this limited amount and that there are many important ramifications that follow from it being limited. And then I guess finitude is also a sort of a more all-embracing idea that encompasses not just our limited time, but the limited attention, intentional bandwidth that we have, the uh, fact that we can only pay attention to a very limited amount at once, all sorts of other limits, the limit of our stamina, the limits created by our sort of moment in history in which we find ourselves, or certain kinds of aspects of the socioeconomic situation in which we find ourselves, but just all the ways in which certain kinds of non-negotiable limits structure our lives, Mm. and what happens when you sort of Pay attention to that a little bit more instead of constructing ever more ways to avoid having to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that that's one of the fascinating parts of the book. Um, how we avoid thinking about our own finitude through so many different escapes, essentially. Uh would you be able to speak a bit to that? That was one of one of my favorite parts of the book that really got me thinking about my own habits. Yeah, well, I mean, firstly, just as an important qualifier, obviously, I'm sure it's true for any book in this broad kind of genre, um, whether the author admits it or not, this is me working through my issues and yeah, um, yeah. me delivering the advice that I really needed to hear, um, among among other things. But uh, yeah, I think the thing that's been really striking to me investigating this area, and I think it's just a sort of broader understanding from going through a bit of getting a bit older in life is how much of what I think I would say we do, certainly what I do, uh, is, uh, is best understood as a way to try to avoid feeling certain feelings that we'd rather not feel. Mm. And I quote a couple of times in the book, a psychotherapist called Bruce Tift, whose work I really, uh, rate and recommend, um, to the effect basically that we put a lot of effort into trying to avoid consciously participating in the experience of being uh, constrained, imprisoned by reality. You know, there are, there are the reality that we find ourselves in imposes certain limits that makes us uncomfortable and we do everything we can usually to sort of build a psychological world that allows us to avoid uh, feeling those things. And so to put this into concrete terms um time management in its in its bad manifestation i suppose certain kind of um idea that's afoot in the culture of sort of productivity and self-optimization and the rest of it is this idea that if we only came up with the right set of methods and we only applied a bit more self-discipline then we might 
finally manage to get ourselves into a position with regard to time where we felt capable of anything and everything, able to deal with every demand that might be flung at us, able to implement every ambition that we have that really seems like it matters, um, able to feel confident about what's coming down the pike in the future. You know, there's this kind of what it really is um to sort of put it bluntly is a is a desire to get outside of reality to mm. to sort of be in a godlike position over our lives and our time instead of fully in our lives and our yeah. finite time as we are so and i think you know if you look at all sorts of ways in which people behave um, well, as the old psychoanalysts would say, neurotically, what they're doing is, and uh, that covers a wide variety of behaviors and thought patterns, but all the, what they're doing in all those cases is, is sort of trying to avoid feeling something uncomfortable about reality. And crucially, and we can talk about this, I think that kind of approach to productivity, that kind of fixation on achieving that kind of unrealistic mastery of time i think it makes everything a lot worse and it's really anti-productive and it makes you miserable so it you know i guess constructing a world of emotional avoidance would be fine if it if it didn't cause problems but but it does and i think that you know it it sort of systematically saps the meaning from life and that instead what i'm hoping this book encourages people to do is just a little bit more turn towards like feeling the feelings that come from really being in reality, I guess. There we go. That. We started off pretty deep and profound, I suppose. Yeah, we, we <laughs> dove in into the deep end. And uh, one, one other topic from the book that sort of dovetails with what you were just mentioning is that of the, the future chasing mindset where we're always focused on the results that our actions will lead to, as, as you write in the book, uh, quote, treating the present solely as a path to some superior future state, uh, end quote. And we think this is uh, this way, of course, uh, instead of actually enjoying what's happening around us and confronting how we're feeling. Uh, so this future-chasing mindset, would you say that it, it originates in the discomfort of not wanting to face our own finitude? Yeah, I think that is the absolute foundation of it. I think it is the future chasing part comes at that in that sense because the thing we're chasing here is is not possible to achieve right this this exit mm-hmm. from from the reality of things is not for humans to achieve and therefore if we are going to place it anywhere it it has to be in the future it has to be that maybe soon we'll get there maybe soon we'll get so productive so self-disciplined that we will finally get there um so it's a kind of illusory hope if you tried to place it in the present, you would always have to conclude that it's not va- it's not there. You know, it hasn't worked. So it, that's why that element of the of the future chasing um, kicks in. I think there's all sorts of other pressures that cause us to focus on the future. I think the economic system that we uh, exist in it very strongly reinforces that. And in a sense, any question of how to use time well, even though I think that is both important. You know, I wrote a book about it and also yeah. unavoidable on some level. I don't think we could choose not to care about that question. Nonetheless, um, fixating on that, on that idea of using time well almost inevitably pitches you into this like 
waiting for the future, waiting for the future. Because the whole idea of using something is for some purpose that is going to come later, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's very difficult to really care about time management and productivity, to be a productivity geek, as I would describe myself as having been. Um, Yeah. You too, I believe. Yeah, Um, a little bit. (laughs) It's very difficult to be totally in that mindset um, and not be sort of over-invested in the future at the expense of the present because it's sort of fundamental Mm. to um to the whole that whole kind of stance towards time has your relationship with the field of productivity advice changed over the last few years especially uh in putting together this book yeah it it really has and actually in a kind of interesting two two part way i mean or maybe three parts I, i spent many years writing a column for the guardian newspaper one big part of which was sort of exploring new approaches and books on productivity uh, and, you know, definitely taking that exploratory mode, which you'll be, I know you're familiar with as well. And really at that stage, I think I was pretty much, you know, unconsciously focused on hoping that one day some combination of these systems would finally get me to this place that I wanted to be at where I was felt in control and I felt, you know, invincible or sort of not or emotionally invulnerable or whatever it might be. You know, I felt secure about things and I went through a sort of gradual and then sudden uh, process of becoming um, disillusioned by that promise and sort of beginning to see what I'd been up to psychologically, I guess. Mm. Um, and then that sort of birthed this book, which I think is sort of what came on the other side of that kind of productivity fixation. But I would also say that um, during the writing of the book, and certainly since uh, writing the book, there are certain of those techniques that I used for that sort of rather suspect emotional psychological purpose <laughs> back then that I've sort of begun to reintroduce into my life here and there just because they're perfectly useful, right? And it's not, it, it, it's all to do with the spirit in which you adopt some technique or, or some practice. If you're doing it as part of this kind of mission to uh, achieve salvation, to get outside of reality, to get on top of everything, to not have to make tough choices about what what to do with your time, to try to make life's most important activities not scary when they just are scary in, inherently that's one thing and that then you should probably work on letting go of the te- those techniques but i do think on the other side of this realization not that i've you know become perfectly transformed and aware <laughs> in touch with my mortality or anything but somewhat mm-hmm. you find like sure i mean absolutely nothing wrong with time boxing absolutely nothing wrong with the Pomodoro technique. Absolutely nothing wrong with all sorts of uh, well-known approaches to productivity. Once you're doing them, in my opinion, from the perspective of, okay, this isn't going to solve the problem of being human. This is just going to help me make wiser choices about how to deploy my finite time. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. And that that's one of the things that I loved about the book as well is so many of the productivity books out there, they focus on on the moment-by-moment moment productivity, the day-by-day, day, the week-by-week, the month-by-month. Month. 
what what I love about four thousand weeks is you zoom out to focus on the decade by decade approach and and the finitude of it all and sort of the uh, I guess the size of the canvas we have to paint on uh, with our actions and the t- the context within which productivity exists. Um, and of course, part of that is what, what you just mentioned with your own mortality. Um, I, I'm curious, as was there a moment in time, you know, where you started thinking about your mortality, or has that thinking evolved with time as well, m- much like your ideas about productivity in general? I don't know that I could place a specific marker and say I started thinking about mortality then you know i think the one interesting thing about this is that i don't think this book really is very much about mortality per se you know it's not a book about death and dying yeah and there was a little bit of that in my previous book the antidote about memento mori and the idea of sort of really dwelling on the thought of of one's own mortality i'm very far from convinced that i am particularly uh, reconciled to mortality. I don't think that I'm particularly more reconciled than uh, than uh, anyone else. What, when I'm talking about finitude, I guess I'm talking about one very central consequence of our mortality. It obviously only exists mm. because we die, but it's not quite the same thing as um, a focus on death and dying, which I think is very important. And you know, I'm interested to go into uh, more deeply, but. I guess, you know, uh, one of the things that I think follows from that is that the discomfort that I'm talking about and that we need, I think, to get a bit friendlier with and a bit more tolerant of, it's not a kind of terrified panic of facing the fact of death in all its like, in all its sort of horrifying awfulness. That may in fact not be something that human beings can do completely. I don't, I don't mm-hmm. know. It's just that very low level discomfort that we all are familiar with the kind that um pushes us into distraction because it's nicer to uh scroll through social media than focus on the difficult project we were working on or the kind that the kind that makes us want to try to answer 300 emails before we move on to the day's big project because then we'll feel like we don't have anything on our plates and that kind of thing that discomfort is a little sort of it's a little version of the of the sort of horror of the fact that we have to die. But it's a really minor one (laughs) in terms of the emotional intensity of it. And so all you need to do in order to sort of come to terms with that a bit is get a bit better at handling minor discomfort. Uh, You don't actually necessarily need to um, stare death in the face. And I'm not sure that I... I'm not sure that I know how to counsel that staring death in the face. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and that's totally fair. Um, <laughs> I, and what, one thing I, I should mention is, um, you know, the, the word mortality and, you know, finitude, they, they call to mind images of, you know, dark, dark stuff. But, but you, you talk about how it's a beautiful thing in, in the book too. Um, I, I don't, I don't want that to, to dissuade anybody from potentially picking the book up. You talk about how it, it's a fundamental, beautiful thing that we're here at all, that there are, that there is time in our life to manage 
Um, but by God, we got, we got to use it well. Um, what, one other, uh, lesson that I personally took away from this is something that, uh, frankly, I hadn't really encountered before, um, in, in a different book, but I encountered for the first time in, in yours is, is the idea of, of not treating our time as if it's something to hoard and how hoarding our time makes our days less meaningful overall. Uh, could you speak a bit to that idea as well? This is something that I personally struggle with quite a bit, especially since it seems that as time has gone on and I've invested more in productivity and checked out more of the research and, and the techniques out there, uh, as I valued my time more, I'm more likely to hoard it and use it for selfish reasons that are actually a bit less meaningful than giving up a bit of control over it. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally feel what you're saying. I think this word hoard has a number of different meanings that could apply to different arguments, all of which I make and believe, but I'll focus on the one I, I think you're probably getting at, which is this idea of sort of individualistic control of time versus um, more communal and social things, right? Yeah. So I think that very deep in our culture and in the sort of genre of productivity writing and productivity uh, techniques and systems in general is this notion that what you're really going for here is in the ideal case is like total autonomy over your time that you would be the one who decides every minute of the day uh what it is that you do with your time and we might all accept certain realistic limits on that okay maybe you have the kind of job where you don't have that kind of total control maybe you have a family where you know you have to do things that they want to do but still the ideal in the background there is total individualistic control and i sort of unpack the whole thing of the digital nomad as the kind of epitome of this right yeah. so if you can that 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 the, the sort of underlying ethos of that whole lifestyle is that you can go anywhere you like and do whatever you want because you can run your business from from anywhere. I've found it very bewitching in the past and, you know, only for sort of a month or two or a week or three at the time, I have done things that might look like, you know, a bit like digital nomadism, not not as a lifestyle. But as I think you'll also know, like what the people who do this report is that they then, like loneliness is a really huge problem because mm -hmm. they you sort of put yourself outside of the rhythms of of ordinary human life and you sort of find yourself being in sole control of your time is sort of ultimately at the extreme is to just be sort of completely alone because actually an island right exactly yeah because actually i think you know what we all know on some gut level is that time is not just the kind of it's not like money where the most important thing is to have a chunk of it and you control it entirely, right? It's, it mm -hmm. Time is valuable to the extent that it's coordinated well with other people's. Time is something that takes on a lot of its value from how well it is coordinated with other people's time. There are all sorts of things, businesses, political activism, dating, friendship, uh, extracurricular sort of, you know, hobbies and, and activities. Like, you can't do any of these successfully if you are not your time isn't coordinated well with with some other people who are involved in the same activity and yet 
you know, I think the direction that we're heading as a society um, for all sorts of different reasons, but which that kind of individualistic approach of productivity culture encourages, we're heading towards being desynchronized from each other. We're heading towards the situation where, like, you can never make it work to find a time in your schedule and your two closest friends schedules when you can all make it to, you know go for a drink or whatever yeah. um and i think this has all sorts of ramifications that go beyond you know having a drink with your friends that it you know it's a little harder to see what you do about it i think because i think there are some things you can do but but it's it's one of those problems that seems to almost come along for the ride with the kind of liberal individualism that most of us broadly um uh value uh you know we could live in a society where the government tells us that we all have to uh go to the park and do communal exercises at on a on a friday afternoon and that we all have to stop working at five o'clock every single day and you know generally especially in america um but in the rest of the sort of anglophone world especially people definitely don't want that and i don't think i do either but on the other hand it's a little hard to see how you can bring back synchronization without at least some loss of personal freedom so it's a, it's a mm. challenge so how do we find a balance there is it just a matter of saying yes to more things that we don't have control over or what's the um, what's the next step there i mean i think that's a big part of it two things spring to mind I and mean, one is just the simplest thing is like a is clubs and organizations, right? I mean, at least until yeah. COVID, I was singing in an amateur choir every week and I loved it. And I. You really do have a nice of, voice, a nice melodic voice. I can <laughs> see you being a good singer. That's super kind of you. I'm not a good singer, actually. <laughs> but one of the things well, you that's. you fooled me, Oliver. <laughs> I, I, I'm happy to accept that I'm a good talker, but I'm not a good singer. And um, one of the things that's so. That, that speaks to an important point. One of the things that's so rewarding about singing is that. Um, the sum of a of an amateur choir singing is so much greater than its part than the, sorry the whole is so much greater than the sum of its parts. You know, you yeah. you you do make a, a better sound than almost any individual person in the choir could attain singing solo because of the ways that the sharps and flats cancel each other out, basically. Yeah. Um, and so that's just an example of something where, you know, it meets at a specific time on a specific day. You have to give up the freedom to decide when you're going to do something like that if you want to do it, because you have to do it when everyone else is doing mm. it. And then more generally, you know, this is a challenge to this day, I find, you know, with my family, only little family, my wife and, and our four-year-old son. But like, I don't want to have an approach to managing and using my time well such that something's gone wrong if i if i you know go along with what my son wants to do for the next hour or mm. if you know uh the most important thing for the family is that i step away from something i was doing at my computer and spend time having a conversation with my wife right i don't want my philosophy of productivity to define all those things as problematic interruptions where my my yeah. time boxing plan for the day has somehow failed that seems that seems wrong but i definitely struggle with it because i'm not you know i experiment and i have i am coming up with some ways to sort of plan a day in a way that stays flexible and doesn't get too rigid i don't want my approach to uh time management to define uh, all those kind of 
totally crucial and meaningful aspects of communal life as failures of that system. That seems like there's something wrong with the system if that if that's the result. Mm. Yeah, what a beautiful way of of putting that. And it seems, and I'm cognizant of of the time here, but it, it seems one other way that this mindset of productivity can cost us is through impatience. And and you write in the book about how we're far more impatient these days than we <laughs> used to be. And I feel I'm quoting a good amount of the book back to you. People are getting like a free little bit of the audiobook, but without the, your your beautiful accent. But but you you do write quote uh, in a world geared for hurry, the capacity to resist the urge to hurry, to allow things to take the time they take, is a way to gain purchase on the world, to do the work that counts, and to derive satisfaction from the doing itself instead of deferring all your fulfillment to the future. Um, I, I'm wondering if you can speak a bit to this impatience and and what maybe it, it dovetails a bit from the previous question. What shifts in thinking need to occur uh, for us to just become more patient with what happens? I think that um, I really kind of love talking about patience and impatience because I think it captures a lot of what I want to try to convey in a very, to me anyway, vivid way. I think of impatience as the emotional reaction to not being able to make reality go at the pace that you think it ought to go. Mm. Um, And that sort of unites something like being stuck in a traffic jam and wishing that, that you were traveling faster than you are and being unable to do anything about it with something like the discomfort that I think people increasingly feel these days while reading, especially sort of reading fiction, reading things that demand time, they that just takes the time it takes. And if you want to get the value from an encounter with a novel, you sort of have to have the ability to slow down to its speed instead of um, in, instead of insisting that it goes at your speed. There are some yeah. things you can do around the edges. I think you can get a little bit faster at reading without losing the core experience of reading, but but only really a little bit. And then, you know, on a bigger time scale, um, I think there's lots of reason to believe that if you can sort of take a, a longer term view of your career, say, um, instead of being sort of subject to the most, uh, to wanting to get to certain places as, as quickly as you possibly can, you might be making very wise choices. And yeah, like you say, like we have all, I mean, we're getting more impatient, even though we have all this technology that saves us time. Yeah. And it seems weird at first, right? Because surely if all this technology saves us time, we can get things done faster, feel less impatient. But actually, waiting for the microwave is way more impatience triggering than waiting for the oven. Waiting for a web page that for some reason is taking five seconds to load is like the worst. Um yeah. <laughs> as compared to just, you know, waiting for something in the mail over a few days. And I argue in the book that that's because these technologies bring us closer and closer to this feeling of having total, omnipotent, godlike control over the speed of reality. It really feels, once you can heat up your dinner in two minutes, that you might be just on the verge of being able to heat it up in in zero seconds. And so every remaining barrier to that is all the more frustrating it's all the more infuriating that you're sort of almost there you're almost transcended the limits of 
reality, but you but you just can't quite. Um, and I think in terms of what needs to change, what what we can hope to change in our own outlook is, yeah, we need to get comfortable or more comfortable with that sort of antsy, unpleasant feeling that things aren't going as fast as we wish. And I think that the key to that is understanding at first, maybe just intellectually, that like, this is a superpower. This isn't something I think you should do because it's more virtuous to be patient or because, um, you know, yeah, like good people are more patient and you should be a nice person or something. <laughs> it's this insight that I take originally from the work of an art historian at Harvard called Jennifer Roberts, um, who I write about in the book, that like in a world that is geared for speed, it is a form of power and control to be able to not go along with the rush to be able to in the midst of that let something take the time it takes like you will produce better writing you will have more creative ideas you will you know whatever your domain uh, where you're seeking to excel like you will do it better if you have the ability uh, at least somewhat to just sort of be with to slow down to the speed of reality to not need things to go faster than they in fact go. So it's like, you know, I realize there's something sort of very unappealing about the idea of being patient. <laughs> My four-year-old doesn't <laughs> appreciate it when I suggest that he cultivate patience. But um, but I think it's like, it, it's a real form of power. It's something that you can that you can use to help shape your little corner of the world, you know, more actively in the way you'd, you'd like it to be. Yeah. And especially, you know, it seems counterintuitive when we all have this this short life, these 4,000 weeks in which to make all of our ambitions and and what we want happen. But it's, yeah, it's it's so true, the point you make in the book and how we essentially wish away time when, when we're impatient. And I love this one line from the book, uh, you'll have noticed how frequently the office microwave still have, has seven or eight seconds left on the clock from the last person who used it, a precise record of the moment at which the impatience became too much for them to bear. <laughs> Such a vivid. <laughs> We've all been there. Yeah. I, I would encourage anybody listening to this to uh, pick up 4,000 weeks. We We just had a chance to cover a few of the uh, wealth, uh, this treasure trove of ideas that are in the book from the future chasing mindset to the uh, finitude, finitude, tomato, tomato, potato, potato, time, to time hoarding, uh, to impatience. There are dozens and dozens of, of takeaways. And it really does uh, feel like the kind of book that uh, anybody could pick it up. And I feel everybody would take a few different things away from them. So these are the things that I happen to take away from the book. De definitely central themes, but uh, I I'd, I'd be excited to hear what you take away when you pick up the book, 4,000 Weeks. Um, thank you, Oliver. Thank you so much again for coming on the, the podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris.